San Diego Comic Con is days away. Out of all of the fun events that you plan to attend, whether it's Nerd HQ, several panels, going to the screenings, Hall H, camping out all night to see your favorite Marvel movies and Warner Brother movie releases that are coming out, make sure you at least mark off one day and time on your calendar. That will be Friday, July 22nd at 7 p.m. That's the Black Girl Nerds of Color Racialicious Meetup. It takes place over at the Hilton Bayfront Pool Club, and that is going to go on until 10 o'clock in the evening. If you want to geek out with some of your favorites from Black Girl Nerds, Nerds of Color, and Racialicious, join us at that meetup. We're expecting a pretty large group to come, so it should be a lot of fun. And follow us on Twitter at Black Girl Nerds, as well as Snapchat. We plan to live stream people on the showroom floor panels, the whole nine. So you'll live vicariously through the Black Girl Nerds San Diego Comic Con experience. And use the hashtag BGNSDCC on Twitter. That is where you'll find all of our fun activities that we will be live streaming throughout the con. Look forward to seeing you in San Diego. also known as the Gibbs Sisters, and we're on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Simone Missick, and I am Misty Knight, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. What's up, y'all? It's producer Will Packer, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Keep it locked right here. tuning into episode 82 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Business Development and Ghostbusters. Three segments. In our first segment, we invite Alejandra Castillo. Alejandra is the National Director of Minority Business Development Agency and works with Essence Festival, bringing many people of color opportunities in STEM-related fields. That episode is hosted by yours truly and co-hosted by Kayla, KB, and Joy. In our second segment, we invite the legendary Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson, you know him best as Winston from Ghostbusters. He's also appeared in tons of other films. And Ernie sits down with Tora, Jay and Monk, and KB and talks about his career and also talks about his thoughts on the new Ghostbusters films. Had some controversial opinions out the gate, but gets the record straight about his thoughts regarding the franchise in its rebooted form with an all-women team. In our third segment, Joelle sits down on a one-on-one with director Paul Feig of Ghostbusters. Paul's film has caused a lot of polarizing opinions all over. One of the most remarkable things about Ghostbusters is it made tons and tons of money this weekend, proving that, yes, women can lead at the box office. 
So Joel talks a lot about the film and also his work as a filmmaker in that segment. So there you go. Three great segments, two of them about the new Ghostbusters film that just premiered this weekend. And if you're someone that's interested in business development and STEM-related fields, then our first segment with Alejandro will definitely be something worth taking notes on. Sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast, and hope you get a lot out of this one. Alejandra Castillo is the National Director of the Minority Business Development Agency. She currently is leading a contingent to Essence Fest and has forged a partnership with Essence to provide entrepreneurship workshops, boot camps, and so much more. The agency's programming shaped by Ms. Castillo will be a key part of the money and power slate of offerings in the festival's first ever entrepreneurship village. The theme is Leap, Run, Grow. The effort is part of a broader push from the White House and the Department of Commerce to support minority-owned businesses and entrepreneurs in tech and STEM-related fields. Thank you for tuning in to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. We are so thrilled to have someone here that is going to change a lot of your ideas, your perspectives, and your thoughts about the business community and ways you can become an entrepreneur yourself. We have guest Alejandra Castillo. She is the National Director of Minority Business Development Agency at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Thank you so much, Alejandra, for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Great. Um, I'm Alejandra Castillo, the National Director of the Minority Business Development Agency at the U.S. Department of, Co- of Commerce, and I'm delighted to be here at the Black Girl uh, Nerds podcast. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on our show, and also I just want to welcome our co-hosts, Joy, KB, and Kayla. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you. So Alejandra, first of all, I I wanted to ask sort of like what's happening with the infrastructure of our economy and business and especially the barriers that we deal with uh, as women of color. What are some of the barriers that make it difficult for us as women of color and ethnic minorities to start and sustain companies with STEM-based business models? So, Jamie, thank you so much for, for inviting me. Um, you know, I always like to start from a, from a point of opportunities. And, and again, as I mentioned, uh, the Minority Business Development Agency is one of 12 agencies within the U.S. Department of Commerce. Um, and I also uh, usually like to tell people what does the U.S. Department of Commerce do. Um, we are an agency, we are a department, uh, as I said before, of 12 different agencies. And within the department is the U.S. Census Bureau. So as you know, we gather a lot of data. Uh, but we're also the National Institute of Standard and Technology. So when it comes to not only data, we're also uh, the Department of Innovation and Technology. We're also the Patent and Trademark Office. So when we talk about innovation mm. and technology and intellectual property, we want to make sure that people are able to protect their intellectual property. So we, we encourage people to, to uh, do so through patent and trademark. Um, but we're also the International Trade Administration, and we talk about uh, where 96% of the world's consumers live outside of the United States. So I tell you that because although there are lots of different barriers, I also want to tell people there are lots of great opportunities. And let me just take a moment. Um, I talk about uh, the changing demographics, and when I, we know that we talk about how minorities are becoming the majority very soon. But we need to break that down a little bit so that people can understand where the opportunities lie as, as entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs of colors. Um, and, I, and I usually talk about these kind of tectonic plates that are happening at the same time. And there's a, a wonderful writer, um, Ron Brownstein, who, ta- uh, who writes for um, The Atlantic, who also talks about the changing of America. And these are the three kind of areas that he also highlights, and it's the graying and browning and, and also the youthfulness of America. So we know that we have the baby boomers that are aging. We have this growing minority population, but we also have the millennials. So when we take the minority population and the millennials, that's where our core is. 
So we need to make sure that we are harnessing that, and that's why we, we need to talk more about STEM, uh, STEM entrepreneurship, not just STEM education, but STEM entrepreneurship. And hopefully as we go through this podcast, we're going to be talking about how do we bring more minorities into that STEM entrepreneurship so that we can get into the innovation and technology and really build our businesses with technology at the forefront. So let me answer your question because we do need to talk about what are the barriers. And a lot of the barriers when it comes to entrepreneurship still rest on access to capital. How do we start our businesses? Where do we find that capital to sustain our businesses and to grow our businesses? So at MBDA, at the Minority Business Development Agency, our core is helping businesses, primarily minority businesses, grow. We work very closely with the Small Business Administration, but our core is helping them grow in size and scale and to diversify, and that's key so that we don't focus only on the traditional businesses, but that we're focusing on those businesses that are gearing to the 21st century economy. Because there is a technological tsunami coming, and we need to focus on how do we move into those industries of tomorrow so that we can focus on the profits and creating those jobs that are going to really employ our communities. Um, So there's a lot to discuss, and as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it, but I also want to make sure that we parse it out because it's very complex, and, and there's a lot of information that we need to really get to, um, to, to, to discern and to, and to disseminate. Why do you think it's necessary for the federal government to be involved in connecting minority-owned tech and STEM-related businesses to resources? And also, why do you believe that some of the free market and meritocracy means that any hardworking business owner can be successful? You know, I, I think that we need to – I'm a big believer that government and business have always gone hand in hand. Um, and, and let me give you an example. Um, and, and this is one of the, the initiatives that you're going to hear more about, and we're rolling it out. It's our Inclusive Innovation uh, Initiative. Um, uh, the federal government spends – let me just give you an example – $140 billion a year in research and development through our national labs. And there, and there exists a federal lab consortium. We have over 300 federal labs in life sciences, whether it's uh, through the NIH, the CDC, but we also have national labs in energy through the Department of Energy. We also have national labs through the Department of Defense. We, we the federal government invests in very, very early stage research and development. We have fabulous um, uh, scientists. But we also partner with universities who continue to do that research and development. And then we also partner with businesses who take that research and development, look at, looks at it, finds application, and commercializes it. Many people don't know that when you look at your smartphone, there are at least many different types of patents that the, that the business community has licensed out of the federal labs. And they've commercialized it and made a lot of money through it. That's what we want to also help minority businesses to go into these federal labs because those labs have tech transfer offices and be able to take those uh, R&D and be able to patent, uh, uh, license it and put them into commercial applications. So we need to understand that government and businesses have always worked hand-in-hand, and there is a lot of opportunities to partner with that. And I believe that in order to kind of bring minority businesses into a technology, into the technological forefront, this is a way to kind of uh, short-circuit the process. Um, and there's a lot of ways because, you know, we, there, there are applications that need to be um, uh, discovered, perhaps. So there's, there's, there's a, um, uh, opportunities there. And, and the other part is, I really believe in minority-serving institutions, whether they're HBCUs or, or uh, MSIs, that have a role to play in this, in this ecosystem as well. You know, it's not just the Silicon Valley through, through the Stanfords or, or the MITs and the Harvards. I, I really believe there are a lot of wonderful MSIs that are out there that can also create, uh, uh, leverage our uh, engineering students and our engineering uh, professors to really bring in that talent and partner with our business students as well. So, again, how do we create that ecosystem within our communities of color that can bring entrepreneurship to the next level? 
Excellent. Thank you. So, Alejandra, so you recently had a Leap Run Grow workshops at Essence Fest this year. So how did you guys decide to have that collaboration? And was there a specific reason you chose uh, Essence as the uh, company and publication that you would collaborate collaborate with? So I think, you know, um, so last year, in 2015, uh, MBDA did a two-day workshop. And I have to tell you, it was kind of a test case. You know, as you know, Essence has really been a catalyst um, in New Orleans. It's a, it's a wonderful um, gathering uh, celebrating music and culture. But we noticed that there was, you know, when you have such a convening of individuals, we said, let's test it out. We have, we have a center in New Orleans. And we said, well, let's do a two-day um, seminar. And to our amazement, um, the first day we had a great gathering, and the second day we had an even larger gathering. Um, and in the periphery of Essence, we also saw that the U.S. Black Chamber was there, Walker's Legacy was there, National Urban League was there. They were all doing events uh, kind of around Essence. So this year we said, well, why, why don't we go up to um, New York and pitch the idea to Essence as a collaboration? And I really believe that the, the, the strength lies in partnerships and collaboration. So as my, the Minority Business Development Agency, we said, let's convene the groups, let's convene the stakeholders, and see if we can come together and really build an offering that, would, that will galvanize uh, you know, this wonderful gathering of people. So we, we uh, through Essence, we, we created a partnership and, and, and cre- created a council. Essence created an entrepreneurship council, of which all of these stakeholders that I mentioned are part of that. And, you know, through Essence uh, platform, which is a great platform, they too recognize through their own research that African-American women are more interested in finance uh, and a business, even more so sometimes than uh, beauty and fashion. And our research, too, as you know, through the survey of business owner, tells us that African-American women-owned businesses are the fastest growing. Mm. So when you, again, the data tells you the story, the data guides you where you need to go. And those two data points told us this is what we need to be working on. So what a better, what better platform than Essence to really build this Money and Power Expo, which was what, what, what was called. And through that expo, we did an entrepreneurship village. It was three different tracks, the LEAP, Run, and Grow. So if you wanted to start a business, you went to the LEAP track. If you had a business and you didn't know, you wanted to kind of know how to better manage it, you went to the Run. And if you had a business and you wanted to take it to the next level, you went to the, to the grow. And I have to, t- I have to tell you, uh, you know, I always come up with crazy ideas and, and my, my team is always, you know, wondering what's next. This surpassed my, 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 my dreams and it was fantastic. At the end, we were exhausted, but we were so wonderfully surprised. We now have great ideas for next year. You know, there's even ideas of how do we engage the youth because at Essence, Essence is a fantastic gathering of African-American families who come down, you know, hard, they're hard-earned money, they spend it, they're, they're happy, there's no, you know, it's, it's a great time to really bring what makes the community uh, th- uh, truly thrive. I'm not suggesting it's the, it's the only platform, but it's a platform that has been tested and it works. And people come from all around the country, so it's not just New Orleanians. It's people from around the country. And, and we found a great um, audience. So I'm hoping that, um, again, it was the Department of Commerce was there, NASA was there, Department of Treasury was there, and various uh, companies were there. So I'm hoping that next year it's going to be even bigger and better with a much broader um, offering of topics. Um, so I was very pleasantly pleased, and I think Essence um, really um, understood the value of broadening the the, the, the conversation. That's great. Um, 
So in reading about your career trajectory on your blog on the U.S. Department of uh, Commerce, you mentioned that you came of age in the Bronx after being born in, in the Dominican Republic. So I'm personally from the Bronx. I was born and raised in the Bronx. So my question is, how did the Bronx shape you into the woman you are now? So um, I was actually born in, in New York, um, and um, my father had a as you know, a bodega, which is the quintessential grocery store of the Bronx. Um, and I grew up in, in New York in the 70s. So um, uh, as you as you may know, or, or if you had families that lived in the Bronx in the 70s, it was not an easy place to live. Um, and, and even when you hear Justice Sotomayor, who, who's also from the Bronx, um, when she talks about the Bronx, it was, it was a, a challenging place. But it was a place that when you grow up in, in areas like that, you you understand the vibrancy of it. You understand that, you know, every apartment has a story, right? Every every apartment uh, has its story, and every every place has its hope. Uh, it has its challenges, but you always come home with 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 a dream, and and you know you want it to. Um, hopefully, every every mother, grandfather father or grandfather or uncles and aunts, uh, it's your community. So for me, um, even when I go back now, although I've, I've lived in D.C. for 24 years, um, New York is still home. So um, I carry that, and, and when I see a, a, young, a young girl or a young boy um, in, in urban areas, um, I just want to make sure that they understand that it's not the environment that makes you. It's it's your it's your mindset. It's making sure that you're always working hard and and that you're you're doing your best. Because I think at the end of the day, um, when you have uh, role models that instill in you um, driving for excellence, um, you know that that becomes part part of your uh, DNA. I'm not suggesting that it's easy. Um, you, you go through your your growing pains, but um, but I think that you know, I, I uh, New York is always part of you, um, and New York um, toughens you up in so many ways. But it's always uh, you make it happen. I guess that's that's my motto. You always find a way to make it happen, even in the in the most challenging of times. Um, and I think that's what makes MBDA such a core passion for me because I saw my father, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. and going to the Bronx Terminal Market and and uh, getting his supplies to to make sure that he was able to provide the produce and, and uh, for the communities where there was no supermarkets, right? Uh, and he was a he was a leader in his in his community. He he knew the kids that were that were not uh, that were cutting classes, and he was able to talk to the to the parents, and he was able to be a, a role model. So there were a lot of kids that he also hired during the summertime. Um, so I really believe that minority-owned business owners. Our, our leaders in our communities, and, and I want to make sure that they continue to be that. Thank you. Hi, Alejandra. Uh, this is KB here. So, you know, I know that you've been with the MBDA for about six years now. And um, like you mentioned previously, you do come from a line of family-owned businesses. So what did you see in particular within your family and their businesses that created a passion in you to develop and, and fight for minority-owned businesses? So as I said before, you know, my, my father was a grocery store owner. Uh, my godfather had, um, you know, a, a manufacturing, a clothing manufacturing um, uh, uh, factory in, um, in New York on, you know, fashion uh, on 7th Avenue uh, back in the 80s. Um, it was, it was, I think, uh, and, and my mother, you know, as many moms perhaps, you know, sold Avon and my aunts would make, uh, you know, they had restaurants. So I come from a family where everyone had some type of a business. Um, and I think it's kind of that American dream. I, I usually tell folks um, the American dream is not necessarily owning a house sometimes. I think the house comes at, at some point. I think the American dream is, is having a business. Being able to be the uh, kind of having the uh, the uh, the freedom of of uh, of creating your own destiny of having that that um, being able to create your wealth creating wealth create, uh, having the opportunity to have the freedom of your of your employment um, 
But at the end of the day, in many ways, and when you walk through, again, I, I grew up in an urban setting. When you walk through the, sit, uh, the streets of any city, you see the vibrancy of, of how uh, minority-owned businesses shape uh, the, li- the life of a city. Um, and I, even though I've lived in D.C. for a long time, um, when I walk the cities of the, the streets of D.C., I, I wonder, you know, how was it back in the 60s when so many um, African-American-owned businesses were part of the vibrancy of Washington, D.C.? And how do we bring that back is the question that I always have. So when I travel around the country and I see cities, whether it's Chicago, Atlanta, um, D.C., um, the Bronx, um, Los Angeles, places where there is a large minority population, um, I guess the question that drives me is how do we support uh, uh, minority entrepreneurs to be able to create that vibrancy, that economic vibrancy for the cities so that they can generate job creation and wealth creation. Um, and as a public policy person, um, I want uh, politicians and decision makers to understand that these are questions that we need to ask ourselves. What are the elements that we need to ensure that we put in place so that there is economic opportunities to create that job, not just to start the, the not just to start the business, which tends to be the conversation. How do we help people start their businesses? But more importantly, how do we help them sustain it and grow it? Um, because starting the business could be the easy part. It's sustaining it and growing it. Um, And in today's day and age, how do we inject technology and innovation so that they can really compete in a 21st century economy? Um, So, again, I'm I'm very passionate about it because I believe that um, we need to talk about wealth creation and we need to talk about job creation. Uh, particularly in communities of color, um, that, that's, that's essential. Everybody wants to, be, to have some economic freedom. And that's the, you know, again, if we go back, that's kind of that second portion of what MLK spoke about. It wasn't just civil rights, it was also economic rights. Um, and, and I'm, uh, again, I want to be able to, to, to at least make a contribution along those lines. Wow, that's that's great. And you kind of, you know, touched on it a little bit just uh, just now. But what would your advice be for minorities just starting a business, just really on the ground in terms of who they should get connected with and what programs and or financial assistance, you know, is currently uh, available for minorities trying to start a business? So the, the, the beauty of this is that there's a plethora of different resources, and and obviously there. Uh, you have to try try them all, right? You want to you want to find what fits. Um, in the federal space, you have SBA, the Small Business Administration. Obviously, my agency, the Minority Business Development Agency. We have 44 centers around the country, um, and I invite you to come to our website, mbda.gov. Um, uh, there's also various organizations, whether it's the Kaufman Institute or, or different organizations, nonprofit organizations the U.S. Black Chamber, Walker's Legacy, um, uh, National Urban League. Um, but then there are all the other uh, meetup groups. You know, there's a community of entrepreneurs. Bounce your ideas off of people. Look for guidance. Get, get some mentors. Work with financial institutions. Make sure that you, you understand what the mechanics of of the of the business, you know, some people are very passionate about their ideas, but they haven't worked through the mechanics of it. You know, work with professional services, get a good lawyer, find a good accountant. Sometimes, you know, you want to, you may have to start uh, with some, you know, pro bono if you if you have a friend who's an accountant who can at least give you some guidance. You know, do a lot of the homework. Um, because you want to make sure that you, you get as much information and guidance as possible. But there, but get to network. Networking is key. And I, I always kind of in a jokingly manner say, get some business intelligence. You know, what's, what's in the cutting edge? Trade association. There's a lot of free information out there. Now with Twitter, 
you know, follow what the discussion is in your in, in the business that you're in. Um, see what's the cutting edge because, again, you want to have a comparative advantage. What's, what makes your business so unique? Social media is fantastic in terms of the marketing. Um, again, I, I, you have to put yourself in the middle of it, breathe it, live it. Um, a business is a hard thing to do, but if you're very passionate about it and you're really being the best that you can be in terms of getting the information, and then reach out for help. Uh, a, a famous quote that I always use, if you want a friend for life, ask for help. Sometimes you want to do it all by yourself. That's not how it works. Ask for help. Be persistent. And you'd be surprised. People will always try to become invested in your success. Um, and I think that's that's something that as, as a community of color, sometimes we're embarrassed to ask for help. Reach out. Um, these types of podcasts are fantastic as well. So I congratulate you ladies for, for the wonderful work that you do because we need more more uh, sessions like this where you're disseminating the information. And, again, um, I would be delighted for people to reach out to MBDA through our centers and, and look uh, and go to our, go to our um, website. We do a lot of webinars. There's a lot of webinars that are done through MBDA, through, through SBA as well, um, and, 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 and seek the information as much as possible. Wow, thank you. Great advice. Hi, Alejandra. This is Kayla. Um, so the Latin community has been a topic of this of discussion for a certain political candidate. And um, I, I just want to know, how important is it to you to have the Latin community show up in November and actually vote? Well, currently I am a, I am a member of the Obama administration. So all I can say is, um, uh, as a lawyer, um, uh, I have worked in, um, uh, as a voter protection attorney in, in various election cycles. Um, I believe that it is your civic duty, um, regardless of which party you, um, you have an affiliation towards. Um, many, many uh, people before us have fought very hard for us to have the right to vote, uh, whether it's as women or as minorities, and we need to honor that. Um, people around the world um, are, um, would like to have the privilege that we have in this country to be able to have a democratic process. Um, and I, I want to make sure that we, we as Americans understand how privileged we are, that we live in a country where we have such freedom. So I hope people take this election seriously. Again, regardless of which party you are affiliated, but we need to make sure that we, um, we come out to vote, not just for the presidential, because that's another issue, but that we come out to vote every single time we have uh, a decision to make, because um, elections happen very often in this country, whether it's for school boards or for a variety of issues. Um, so come November, I, I hope people understand that they have a civic duty to vote. Um, so I'm hopeful that um, people will understand that, um, these elections are very important. So thank you for the question, though. Thank you. And, and you are the first Hispanic American woman to head the MBDA, and that's amazing, especially for me um, as a Latin woman as well, to see that. Um, how has taking on this role changed your life? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored. Um, obviously, the, when I hear the, the comment of being the first, um, I just hope I'm not the last. Right. Um, uh, I want to make sure that um, MBDA continues to be an agency that is reflective of of, of the, the minority community writ large. Um, but it's been very fascinating. Um, I think that um, we need more representation uh, uh, as as women um, at the highest levels of government. Um, and I'm, I'm very uh, proud that I'm able to serve along with um, uh, our secretary, Penny Pritzker, who, uh, as a woman herself, um, as Secretary of Commerce, uh, it's been wonderful to watch her management style um, and how she leads our agency um, and, and, and the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm always in awe as uh, how, she, how she's able to just juggle so many balls in the air and, and so many different issues because, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, Commerce is a very, very broad agency. We deal with the weather through the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. 
from the weather to the census to international trade to to um, patent and trademark. So um, I think when you look at women um, in, in the highest um, levels of whether it's government or business, um, I'd love to see more women in those roles. Um, so being able to say that I'm the first woman leading MBDA is definitely an honor. But as I said before, I, I just hope that there will be many, many more women um, uh, coming after me and that I serve with more women alongside of me. Um, so I'm trying to do my part to make sure that I have many more women colleagues um, in government. Thank you. Alejandra, thank you so much for coming on our show. This was a wealth of information that our listeners really needed to hear. Uh, before you go, though, can you just let us know where we can find information about the Minority Business Development Agency and also give us your social media shout-outs? Sure. So first of all, this was a lot of fun. I hope that we are able to um, to join you in, in further podcasts. Um, I'll say that I'm a big advocate of women in tech. So women, tech, and entrepreneurship is is key. Um, you, I hope that your listeners will also visit us at mbda.gov. So um, we have a lot of information there, and as I said before, webinars and, and different uh, announcements of events and, and other activities. Um, our, our Twitter handle is uh, USMBDA. And uh, as well as na uh, and National Director MBDA. So NAT uh, DIR MBDA uh, is our Twitter handle as well. So thank you so much for this. This was wonderful. And, and kudos to all of you ladies for, for being at the cutting edge of, of this great podcast. Thank you so much. This is great. Thanks. Sure. Ernie Hudson is an actor known for roles in Ghostbusters, The Crow, and Oz. In the new 2016 Ghostbusters reboot, he actually plays the role of Leslie Jones' uncle in the film. In the 1984 film Ghostbusters, Hudson played the role of Winston and also appeared in the 1989 sequel. He's appeared in dozens of TV roles and film roles to date, as well as some voice roles in video games. for being here. Just to get us kicked off, in honor of the new Ghostbusters being released soon, can you share your favorite memory from filming the original? And what can you tell us about your role in the new adaptation? Well, you know, I can't tell you a lot because I think they want that to be a surprise for, you know, the fans when they see it. And I don't want to be, you know, a spoiler, but it was very important for me to support the girls in the franchise and the fans who've really, uh, you know, been so dedicated to the movie and, and I just thought we should have had something out there for them a long time ago, but I'm happy that something is happening now and like I said, I just really wanted to, to be, you know, uh, supportive. And, you know, I saw the movie, I, I enjoyed it, I loved especially the camaraderie that the girls have. I think we had it in the first couple of movies and uh, that part Share, can you share your favorite memory from filming the original movie? My favorite memory, probably, I'm not sure if it's anything in the movie itself. Um, I just enjoyed so much being on the streets of New York with Bill Murray and seeing how the fans just adored him. And uh, it's amazing to me that, you know, 30 plus years later, they still do. But uh, the fans would literally jump out of their cars and know the street and run over and um, and hug him. Because I was working with uh, Danny uh, Ackroyd, Sigourney, and, uh, who, you know, weren't unknown at the time, but there was uh, special chemistry that Bill had. And just as an observer um, and being on the scene, it was, it was fascinating for me to kind of 
try to understand that relationship between, you know, the star and, and his fans. Uh, that was really kind of cool. I, I, probably the scene, he and Danny um, would talk about the paranormal stuff that he believed, and I realized that he actually believed the stuff. Um, and he wrote that scene with the two of us in the car talking about, you know, the end of the world. Um, I come from a religious Christian background, and some of that stuff was incorporated in the scene, so it was fun working um, with him. But there was a lot of, you know, just great times. Oh, wow. So how did you feel when you first heard rumors of there being a remake of the Ghostbusters with an all-female cast? Well, I'm going to be really honest here because I, I, I tried to be once before and uh, I, got, I took a lot of heat because they somehow interpret things and say that I don't like women, which is totally not true, or that I wasn't in favor of there being a Ghostbusters with women. But when I was first asked the question, it was, what did I think of the idea of all girls? And I said, if it's all girls, it didn't sound like it was a job and it's for me. That was kind of a joke, but it got totally misinterpreted. Once it became clear that the movie was moving forward, I think it's great. I, I don't. I think women can be just as funny, and if there are ghosts, they can probably bust them as well as anybody <laughs> else. So I didn't understand why it had to be necessarily all women or all men, and why it could be whatever. But you know, studio didn't ask my opinion in that you know that department. So I was just glad to see them move forward with another movie because I think. I think the fans are always wanted that. Yeah. I met the met the ladies. I didn't know the world before, but yeah, like I said, they're all very funny. You know, but I knew that this would obviously have to be different. And Paul Big wanted to put his own mark on it, and, and I think that's what you get. But I think it it works on a lot of levels, and of course, there's a lot of things that I probably would have done differently. But you know, I'm not the guy who's you know directing things. While most people know your work in Ghostbusters and Oz, you've had an extremely prolific career in film and television. That didn't necessarily get a lot of attention from critics and audiences. What are some performances you've given that, regardless of the film or show it's in, you are proud of and would think would be worthwhile for fans to revisit? So, most of them, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud and thankful that I had a chance to do uh, the quote with Brandon Lee. Uh, I love Brandon. It's tragic what happened. Um, but I'm so glad he made uh, a movie that uh, I kicked stars up, um, and I'm glad I got a chance to work with him. I knew him for a while before, so the Crow is one. The Hammer Lost of Cradle. Um, I love that character, and I and I was free to do the work that I do without having to sort of massage other people's egos. I like Congo uh, because it was just a lot of fun, and once again, I was free to do my own thing with it. It's so much trying to be diplomatic uh, in film, trying to make other people comfortable. So I think those are films that still, you know, play pretty well. And um, yeah, you know, and I'm, you know, I feel good about. It. Okay. Um, so at one point after the after Ghostbusters, you expressed frustration that studio bosses kind of cut you out of publicity posters and chopped your character's role. Were you concerned at all about similar behavior for Leslie Jones' character in the remake? You know, it's um, they, they, it's four of these characters there in an alternate universe where the original characters don't exist. I don't totally understand that, but I kind of. Uh, and so I guess there's a character for one of us, and Leslie being the black actress, I was supposed to be substitute of my character. And I like Leslie. I wasn't sure how she was going to play. I've seen some of her comedy before, but I will say she's wonderful in the movie. Uh, she tends to, and I don't want to say tone down, criticize the other things that she does, but uh, it was important for me that the character not come in and play the black thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as opposed to just being a person, just being someone out there who wants to be a part of the team, you know, uh, just just play life. And uh, it, it's one of the things that I've really been very adamant about my whole life. And 
certainly in my career, and uh, and I think Winston connects to people because he is a guy. You know what I mean? It's not that he doesn't think he's black because he knows who he is, but I, I don't think we go around life sort of talking, you know, just... Right. Right. We're all connected, and I don't like the separation. But I will say, she doesn't do that. She's very, very good in movies, and she um, she plays it great. So I like her performance, and uh, if it is, a, you know, an extension of the Winston character, then she does a great job. And I'm, I, I say that now after seeing the movie. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to feel for it, but you know, she's very good in the movie. In fact, I think she's one of the stronger players in the movie. Good. Um, Ernie, one question. So what role have you played that's had the most impact on you, Ernie Hudson? Well, it's been kind of hard because uh, I came into the industry trying to, uh, wanted so much to to get in so much that I I didn't have any connections with anyone um, about the business. So probably... um, uh, I haven't been able to play characters close to me. The Hanrods of Cradle is not close to me. Congo is not really, I don't feel close to me. So to be able to let go, I'm just now being able to do that. Grace and Frankie is the character that, that, that I'm basically playing me. And um, uh, But I think early on I was so eager to you know, give them what they want to make the character. Uh, and I do think an actor... Uh, has a responsibility to tell the story and not let himself get in the way. And so in that sense, I think I've been successful. But the way a lot of actors who have been really successful, they brought that essence of who they are to all their characters. And it has a lot of range in those characters, but people like it, and as a result, they pay a lot of money. And, uh, and I'm just now sort of, you know, letting things go and just... Uh, Know, finding those parts of me that I can bring to the work. Unless, of course, it's a character and it's a story that requires you to sort of, you know, uh, stretch. Uh, but I'm trying to uh, just, just be honest and be in the moment and, and be real. I think that's a good place. As we know, Hollywood is rarely kind to older black actors. But imagine a utopian Hollywood where you can pursue or even produce whatever projects you wanted. What films and what roles would you do? Well, you know, I'm not, uh, unfortunately, I'm not a producer. But I I just, I would, you know, so much of what's happening right now, everything, most of the big movies, everybody's at war and everything is explosions and it's just getting sad and it's, it's, everything from the future is coming to destroy everything from the, I don't know. I just, I'm just tired of all the battling, you know? So, you know, I'd like to see some of the movies about people in relationships and, you know, what we're really dealing with, what we're really facing, those things that, you know, you hear another, you know, statistic that something awful happens, somebody being shot, you know, seemingly, you know, without merit. We're doing some, with some real issues, and I like to see the films reflect some of that in an honest way so that we can actually have an honest dialogue and maybe change our perspectives about each other as opposed to some, the answer to everything is to blow it up and shoot it. So, you know, essentially we have all the, the horror conventions, and, uh, sci-fi conventions, and, but there are no romantic comedy conventions, you know. Mm-hmm. No, you know, and I'd love to see us try to connect more. I know it's kind of hard to to be naive uh, or to feel that you're being naive, but I think the real important stuff in this life is the stuff that we, it's the subtle stuff, so it's the love stuff, and um, and that's what I'm more interested in playing. So, oh, wow. and it's seeing, but producing and seeing done, you know, real stuff that is, you know, reflecting who we honestly are and the struggles we're going through and not just covering it up with the answer to everything is is gone. Well, I certainly do hope you get the chance to play those roles. I would definitely look forward to seeing you in that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, but I look to you guys. Uh, you, you guys are the young guys. You're the producers. So, you know, tell your story in a way that 
you know, it needs to be told without having some studio head turn everything around just because he's sitting on all the money. So, um, right. you know, this is your world now. You know, as we get older, we realize that we're passing through and we're getting close to making that transition, but you guys, you know, it's on you now. So, good luck with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining the show, Ernie. We had a a wonderful time. It's been great getting to know you even more and being able to hear um, about old Ghostbusters days and new uh, and the new film as well. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, take care. Director Paul Feig is an actor, filmmaker, producer, and screenwriter. He's best known for directing the 2011 film Bridesmaids. He's also directed comedy films such as The Heat and Spy. He created the critically acclaimed show Freaks and Geeks and directed several episodes of The Office and Arrested Development. Plus episodes of 30 Rock, Parks and Recreation, Mad Men, Other Space, and several other TV series. He is currently the director of the new rebooted Ghostbusters film. You're with Paul is Feig? Feig. Feig. Okay. Man. Paul Feig, the director of Ghostbusters. Hello. I'm so excited. Thank you for taking the time. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you. First, I'm going to ask, uh, in the press conference you talked about how much you love the original Ghostbusters. Is there any apprehension in taking on such a huge property? Oh, none whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It was, it was terrifying. I mean, you know, when I first got the call from Ivan about you know, trying to bring a new Ghostbusters you know, you don't take that lightly. Yeah. And but at the same time immediately go like, oh my gosh, this is like remaking The Godfather or something. Totally. Yeah, but but at the same time you go, it's such a great idea. The idea of Ghostbusters is so perfect and it's such a great showcase for the funniest people working. Yeah. And that's why the original one worked so well, because that cast was so good. So going like, gosh, it almost seems kind of criminal that that great idea is sitting trapped in amber, that in amazing amber, it's a great thing, but like we could create that magic again with, with a with a super group of, of new funny people, and that's what made me go, okay, I think i got to do this. Now, when Ivan brought it to you, did he suggest women? Did you suggest women? Where did that kind of come into play? No, when Ivan first contacted me, there was actually a script that was a, a sequel script. Oh, okay. Yeah, about a new team, and then the, then the remaining Ghostbusters come and kind of help them learn how to do, to do it. And I just, it was a really good script. It just, for me, I felt like, I don't know... I didn't like the idea of a new team just being handed technology. Yeah. You know, I want to see, I love origin stories. Yeah. I like watching Iron Man and seeing, oh my, he's a normal guy that he built himself a heart and suddenly, you know, that's exciting to me and thought, this would be great. We can launch four new characters and, uh, you know, take them on this journey. And so, you know, in going like, well, how would I do this? It wouldn't seem like a, like a big deal because I work with funny women all the time, and yet it was sort of that was the moment I was like, oh wait, I know how to do this. I'll use the funny women I know. But it was so not the first thing I thought of because I think because Ghostbusters is such a kind of a male centric movie, the original yeah. one. But the minute I had that idea, then it was like, oh, I know how to do this, and if I kind of re- and if I can reboot it, then I get it. You know, and it's so clear to me that you were excited about the technology of it. It plays such a huge forefront within the movie, and the devices are so cool! Like, the the fist-punchy thing, the explosions, (laughs) and it's amazing. I'm wondering if you designed the things, or if you kind of told your uh, art people, like, just go for it. Yeah, well, what I had an amazing, you know, uh, production designer who brought on this amazing team of, of artists who, some specialize in just gear, some specialize in just ghosts, some in creatures, and all that. And it was really the first thing when I decided to take it on. I went, oh my gosh, I can invent all this new technology. That made me excited because I'm a real science head. Now, yeah. I love the hardware, that kind of thing. And the first thing I thought of was that proton glove. But then as we were kind of putting it together and I was working with a stunt, my stunt coordinator and like the big fight scene, it's like, oh, this would be great if we had a device that did this and this. And then going to my production designer and saying like, hey, have your guys, here's what I want it to do. Here's kind of the world I think it should look like. But then let them run with it. Because their minds, those guys, especially who, who create that stuff all the time, they, they think in a completely different way. And so they will take some rudimentary idea I have and just turn it into something so detailed. So, so beautiful. Yeah. And it's actually something that struck me about the film. We are kind of um, these really dark films right now, mm-hmm. which can be great. Nothing against them. No, totally. They're amazing. So bright and fun. And in a movie for adults that kids can come to and enjoy. Yeah. The colors, like, just so 
Right, like these really great uh, reds and greens throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Was that something initially you really wanted to say? It gave a nice throwback to that 80s feel. Yeah, well, I knew I wanted it to be fun to watch, but while well, still being realistic. I didn't want it to look like a cartoon. But where that started to grow was when I worked with my special effects supervisor, T. Travers. He said, the way to make these ghosts look real is when they're with the people... They need to have light interaction with them. If we just have a CG ghost floating there that's glowing and, and you're not feeling it on the people, it's going to look fake. So we you know, put these actors who were playing these ghosts in full costume and makeup and all that, but then we put these kind of exoskeleton LED suits on them that were bright. Was that like the exterior skeleton we were seeing? You No, no. It's, it's, we then digitally took it okay, out. Okay, okay. But when you're seeing the light on, on the actors, when they're looking at it, when you're seeing it on the room around them, that's coming from those lights. That's amazing. But what, what was happening with those, those lights were kind of even brighter than we sort of thought we were going to do. But the minute they came on, I was like, I love the look of this because it's just, yeah, it just kind of elevates everything. And so we decided, let's stay with these, let's stay with the brightness of this and keep these bright. Because it is a movie about a villain who is using technology to energize ghosts. And so it's like, well, if they're energized, then they're clearly going to have an extra glow to them. And, and I'm just so happy with how it looks. And you should be. It literally glows, and that's really, really cool. <laughs> um, I was surprised at how kind of jumpy, scary it was. Good. And I thought it was really great when Ivan said that, uh, you know, people screamed first, then they laughed, and then they applauded yeah. because it all happened so fast. And I thought you really captured... That energy of suspense, well, which was surprising. Well, well thanks. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, it is. I love doing comedy that's not comedy, mm. and the way to do that is you have to treat it like it's a drama. You have to, you, know, you have a scary movie. You have to treat it like it's a scary movie, and then the comedy comes from how the funny people in this movie are reacting in a real but a funny person's take on how a person would would act. <laughs> but you know, but I want the scares because. If the scares weren't scary and you didn't feel tense or feel that there was danger, then you're just kind of going joke to joke and you're not invested. That's the thing that pulls you through a movie. Speaking of jokes, I was super talking to my best friend and we're getting to this musical moment and then we kind of skip over it and you include it in the credits. Mm. What happened? Why did we take it out of the film? Was it just, I mean, you had so much fun. Like, I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time. So I think you had a lot of comedy to kind of pack in there. Yeah, you know what I want? And that was the hardest decision to make on this movie because there's Chris Hemsworth doing this amazing dance and these amazing dancers (laughs) are doing it. It was just the, it was, it was one of these things where at that point in the movie we're pushing forward, we're pushing the danger forward and we need the villain to still be kind of scary. And somehow when he went into a dance number, it just, it was a little goofy, but in an amazing way. And so, but I said like, there's no way we're not going to have that in the movie. So it's like, oh, well, we'll put in the end credits, which in a way is almost kind of how we did Bridesmaids. Yeah, absolutely. Because you kind of built up to that song and then we went away from it. It's like, oh, I wish I could have seen that. And then at the end, when you're just kind of relaxed and just sitting there watching the credits, then you can just enjoy it and it's not going to interrupt with the flow of the story. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the initial reaction from some of the I guess we'll call them fanboys of the original sure. when they found out there were going to be ladies. And as a woman, I have such a really difficult time understanding why anyone would be upset at the change of gender. Did that surprise yeah. you at all? Did you kind of expect it and prepare for it? I, I wasn't too prepared for it, no. I, I was kind of surprised by it, too, just because for me it's just so... My brain just goes like, oh, oh, these are the people I work with are really funny. Oh no, they're you know these women are very funny, but I don't kind of go separate like separate. Okay, these are funny men, these are funny women, but yeah. So I was thrown a little bit, you know, and it got painted by a lot of people that I was saying that everybody who was against this movie, you know, hated women or was a misogynist, and I, I never said that. There was definitely a group that had a problem with it being women, but then there was another group that just were rightfully nervous about the remaking of a classic. And that I understand, but, you know, to that group, it was always like, look, I, I, if I wasn't doing it, I'd be nervous too, but I know what we're doing, and I know how pure of spirit we are, and how much we love the original, how we want to recreate that feeling for a new generation. And so to them, it was just like, I just would kind of through it all going like, okay, they'll see it someday, and they'll see what we were doing, yeah. and they'll get it. But I get it. It's a nerve-wracking thing. But for people that have trouble with women, they just got to get I don't want to spoil it, but you had a really great kind of tip to the guys who were misogynist about it because they were clearly out there being very vocal, they, and there was yeah. a great trolls joke within the film, Thank and you. it bowled me over. I was really Thanks. excited. We're very proud of that one. We have to take one little shot. Just a little guys. one. Just, just a little, little one. one. No. Um, 
I work with film students at NIFA, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you had any advice for people just getting started on their filmmaking careers. Yeah, by all means. I mean, if you're starting as a filmmaker now, you are doing it at the greatest possible time to do it. Because coming up, you know, when I was trying to do it, you know, just to shoot a movie was prohibitive because you had to get film, and film cost a ton of money, and how do you get all this stuff together? And then once you, if you were lucky enough to put enough money or get enough money to make it, then how do you possibly distribute it? And how do you pos- even just post-production is going to cost a fortune and then distribute it? Well, now, with, you know, the cell phone sitting on the desk, I can shoot a high-definition movie. You know, I do all these takes and just download it into my computer. My computer comes with editing software, non-linear, non-linear editing software, and then the internet. You can literally distribute your movie to the entire world by hitting an upload button. So there's no excuse to not do what you want to do. The caution, the other side of that is you've really got to be hard on what you do. Yeah. Because you can't just make something then rocket it out into the world because that goes out there. It's out I mean, there Tangerine's forever. really set the bar high oh if you're going to make an iPhone video movie. Like. Totally. And what a brilliant movie Gosh, with yeah. characters you care about and so well-structured. And that's the thing. The fact that you made it doesn't mean it's great. It hopefully will. But you've got to be really hard at it. You've got to let people around you be hard at it. You've got to work it and work it because... Once you put something out there, you want it to be your calling card. And you don't want to have to go like, oh, yeah, well, we, it would have been better, but we didn't do this and didn't do that. Like, no, there are no disclaimers. That was the biggest lesson I learned it when I was at film school, USC film school, is we would show our, you know, student film, and you'd get up and you'd start going like, well, uh, the reason, yeah, we didn't have this. And my teacher would just, he wouldn't let you talk. He'd just go, no disclaimers, no disclaimers, no disclaimers. And he would just, because he goes, the audience doesn't care. And so that's, you got to remember, is like, they don't care. But what they care about is a great story with great characters. They don't care if it looks professional. If you capture them and intrigue them with a great story and great characters, then you are a filmmaker and you will you will be found. Absolutely. Thank you. You brought in Katie, I cannot say her, like, dip, Dippled. Dippled. Mm-hmm. To write with you. Uh, people may know her from Madge. She worked on Spy, right? Mm-hmm. With no, you she, she, she wrote The Heat, yeah. The Heat. She's amazing and so funny. Yeah. What do you like working about with her? Oh, you know what? You... Every once in a blue moon, you find somebody that you are completely in sync with, creatively and comedically. And Katie, I had a brief encounter with her when I directed an episode of Parks and Rec when she had just started there. Just, it was just kind of like, oh, hello, hello. And then, you know, a number of years later, suddenly a script shows up on my counter called The Untitled Female Buddy Cop Comedy. <laughs> And I go, that's what a great idea. Like, it's, a, it's something I'd actually thought about before. I'm like, it'd be great to do, like, a, you know, an all-female buddy cop thing. And there it was. And I read this script, and I'm on an airplane, and I'm laughing so loud, I'm embarrassing myself. And immediately say, I've got to meet this person. And so, you know, I had lunch with Katie, and we were just completely in sync. And, you know, I, I go, I'm never letting you go. <laughs> You're so awesome. And uh, it is just such a delight working with her. She, we have a very the same work ethic which we don't love sitting in a room writing together we like to kind of come up with ideas and then we'll go away to our separate corners and I'll write some stuff and she'll write some stuff and we'll pass it back and forth and we'll rewrite each other but just her voice is so great and having her on set you know she's an improv person and so when you come from improv like I do and stand up you are used to thinking on your feet. You're used to being in the moment. And so when a take is happening or a scene is being shot and you go like, oh, I see a new response I could do there. I see a new thing I could... This is getting my brain going on a new joke that's better or different than the one we wrote. And that's where the magic comes from. I mean, I think in my movies, all the greatest jokes and funniest moments weren't in the original script. They were written on the set in the moment by one of us or sometimes by the actors coming up with stuff and then we'll fine-tune it. But, you know... But to have the openness to be cool about doing that is a big thing. That's why I like working with writers who come from television like I did. Because you just, you can't get religious about things. You just are in service of of making things better. And you just rewrite and rewrite and you don't fall in love with things. Would you recommend to writers doing kind of like specs and things first for TV before kind of trying to get into features? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, anything that gets you gets you writing. But at the same time, sometimes diving right into... A feature script is not a bad thing because you will learn that structure. You just need to be, you just need to be honest with yourself what you're prepared to do and what you're not prepared to do. I always encourage people to write original ideas because you know when you're trying to get a TV job, it's always write a spec, you know, of some whatever show is popular, 
right now. And that's good, but when we were staffing up Freaks and Geeks, I really said, I don't want to read your Buffy script. They said, send me an original screenplay. If you wrote a play, sketches, I don't care, but I want to hear how your your mind thinks. I want to see what your voice is. And I think that's really important. So that's I kind of encourage people to do that. Excellent. What's up next for you? Uh, well, I'm in the middle of writing what I'm hoping is my next movie. I'm not sure, but the very next thing for me is uh, taking a vacation because I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> so Italy, here I come. <laughs> right on. Well, have a great time. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Appreciate it, Paul.